0: Northern New York Community Podcast: Stories from the Heart of Our Community. We are excited to have you here on the Northern New York Community Podcast. I'm your host Max Del Signor. Bruce Irwin and David Studley are churchgoers and close friends. While they attend service each Sunday at Asbury United Methodist Church in Watertown, they also choose to give back to their community together. Their passions and interests may differ, but their empathy for people in need is steadfast. On this podcast, we chat with Bruce and Dave about the importance of volunteering, their meaningful experiences in donating their time, and where philanthropy can make a difference to the North Country's future. But first, we must take a minute to thank our supporters of the podcast, WPBS, and the Northern New York Community Foundation. They are responsible for the creation and production of these great stories from the heart of our community. Head over to WPBSTV.org to see the latest from WPBS, and nnycf.org to learn more about the Community Foundation's recent work. And now let's begin our conversation with Bruce Irwin and David Studley. It's great to have you both here.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: So, how long have you two been friends and when did you first kind of get together? I
1: would say about 25 years. Yeah, Dave. About 25 years. In Asbury Church.
0: Was it just conversation you know after baseball. service baseball so, so tell me about that dave how where, well baseball we were both big
2: up? baseball fans and we both uh, liked the cleveland indians and they were good then real good like they have been the last few years and we just got to talking baseball and it just evolved from there
0: now dave you're from the area originally yes and we'll get to your passion for local sports here in a second but Um, You're from Adams Center correct? Yes. What was it like growing up in Adams Center, Southern Jefferson County as a kid?
2: Well it was great. Uh, I grew up on a farm and I loved farming. I loved everything about it except I wasn't really crazy about cows. But every other part of farming I enjoyed. I went to Adams Center High School which is no longer there and I was from kindergarten through 12th grade in the same building. Wow what was that like? That was great. I mean, there was only 500 kids in the whole school, mm-hmm. and like say from ninth grade to twelfth grade, there was probably one hundred and fifty kids, so you knew everybody and we just we had a lot of fun. we had bikes, we could ride our bikes around we had a we could go swimming at Stokes's pond and uh, ice skating in the wintertime we played hockey that used to get a little rough sometimes, but <laughs> and of course somebody would always get mad and uh, storm off the ice. Boys that was boys. never me, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and take their puck with them. Huh? Yeah, right? yeah,
0: So was, was farming the vocation or profession that you were thinking about after high school? No. Okay. Not at all. What was the next step after high school? Well,
2: I went in the, in the Army mm-hmm. and uh, I served there. I served in the Reserves. And uh, that's one problem I have. I was in from 1956 to 1962 which was probably the most peaceful time in our country. And I've always felt I cheated, you know, because I didn't, you you think about these men that fought in World War II in Korea, Vietnam, I never experienced any of that. So when they say honor thy soldiers, I feel like I cheated. And that's one of the biggest reasons that I give back is because I support the USO, the DAV, Wounded Warriors.
0: So you were discharged in 62. Well, from the reserves. From the reserves.
2: Yeah, yep. my obligation was over.
0: So when you return home, come back to the area, what was yes. the next next chapter?
2: Well, I wanted to be a truck driver. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was gonna be a tractor-trailer driver, which I did for a little while, but I found out that, that that's not all it's cracked up to be, and I didn't like it, and I got hired by UPS. And, well, I worked at the Brownville Paper Mill for a while. Then I got hired by UPS, and I was there for 30 years. And those
0: okay. two, Brownville Paper Mill and St. Lawrence Explosives was another yep. period of time, I right? There for, I drove a truck
2: for them. Those mm-hmm.
0: were two pretty prominent companies and industries really of this area yeah, yeah, at they that were. time. Can you share just a little bit about the size of those companies and both of those businesses being here locally, because they had a number yeah. of employees.
2: Yes. Well, we used to drive dynamite around, and that really is not dangerous, because I think Bruce knows that dynamite won't explode unless it's got a cap, it's got to be confined. So you're pretty safe. In fact, I wasn't involved, but one of our dynamite trucks caught fire at one time, and the state police were there, and they were scared to death that the truck was gonna blow up. Well, you know, John Sibley happened to be on the truck that day, and he told them not to worry. Dynamite will burn, yes, but it won't explode. Uh, I went all over New York State. It was great. It was all these quarries and mines that are in New York State. It's unbelievable. Warren Brothers, St. Joe Lead Company, Jones and Laughlin Steel, mm-hmm. delivered to all those places. It's just, it was a very busy time. John Dunk was the owner-operator of that business. He was the son of Claude Dunk, uh, Claude Dunk mm-hmm. a famous lawyer in this area. But yeah, it was great. It was a lot of fun because I got to see a lot of mines and quarries that you wouldn't normally even know about. There used to be accidents once in a while to blow the face off of mine to get the rock to to shop up and once in a while a seam would break loose and it would smash windows out of trucks and offices and stuff they had to know what they were doing but still accidents happen
0: one of the things that you have always had a fondness or an interest in is is local sports Um, you've actually done a couple of books about Area athletics, yes. you know, auto racing, the former Watertown athletics minor league baseball team, Frontier League basketball, which is high school. W- what inspired you to put some of these? Publications I just thought a together? permanent
2: record should be made of these things. I'm waiting for somebody for years to write a story about Oswego about Watertown Speedway, have all the final point standings, all the race results. And somebody, you know, it should be a permanent record made of because otherwise, everybody's just going to forget about it. And, of course, I waited for 25 years, nobody did it, so I did it. And I can say the same for the Watertown Athletics. I just thought that there should be a permanent record.
0: Well, it's part of the community's history, right? Yeah,
2: yeah, it is. A lot of people aren't interested in it, but I was, and I just wanted to have a permanent record.
0: I know this is probably a hard question to ask, but doing all the mining and the research that goes into the statistics and you know, all that history. Is there one nugget of information from any of those teams or any of the books that you've done that you always find most fascinating or you think is really unique to this area?
2: No, not really, because baseball was big all over the country. At the time that the Watertown Athletics were here from 46 to 51, there was 60 minor leagues in the United States. So really, I mean, it was just another league, you know, only it involved uh, the border between New York and Canada. It involved... Ottawa, Kingston, Sherbrooke, Auburn, Geneva, Watertown, Augensburg, and Granby. A lot of those players in that big, well not a lot, five in that players in that league made it to the majors.
0: And some that might have come through Watertown at one time.
2: Uh, yes, they did. Dick May, going to racing, Dick May raced at in the, in the Grand National Tour, you know what they call Nextel Cup today, and he raced at Watertown Speedway. We had some very colorful and unique drivers out of this area that raced all over, you know but never on the national scene, but that they were well known all over New York state. You know, like Neil Tooley, Gary Reddick, Guy Robinson, Bob Ziegler, they were known all over here and, and Canada because of their ability to manhandle a race car
0: on a dirt track. Bruce, you're actually from a community further north from us in Peru. Uh, tell us a little bit about your upbringing, a little further north in New York. <laughs> right,
1: Peru is a, uh, it's actually a hamlet south of Plattsburgh, it's sort of a bedroom community, I guess, Mm -hmm. where the people go to Plattsburgh to work. My story is pretty similar to Dave up to a a certain point. I came, like, calm, I guess, from a family of nine siblings. Mm. So that's a little bit different than Dave. Dave had a brother and a sister. Yeah,
2: one brother, one
1: sister. As as Dave knows, when you're brought up on a farm, it's a 24-7 operation, especially a dairy farm. You never know when the cows are going to get out or whatever, so it it has that aspect to it that's not particularly (laughs) present, but that's what it is. My family also was involved in logging, cutting trees, both for boards and also uh, for pulp, which is ground up and made made paper from it. So we did that, and we also had a side business. We had a combine, for those that might not know what that is, It's, it's a machine that goes out and cuts wheat, buckwheat, whatever, oats. oats, and it separates the grains of wheat from weed, weeds, and um, it's a single unit, usually drawn either by itself or by a tractor. So I mention that because there's a seat on the back of these combines, at least in those days, you had to have somebody sitting there that would bag up the wheat, oats, whatever, and bag up the it would bag up the weeds as well. So you had to tie off those bags, burlap bags, and toss them off the combine. The area where you sat wasn't very big. And you had to be pretty quick because you may have a weed bag filling up at the same time as a as a wheat bag and it was I was small enough to get on that little back seat and do that. So but anyways that was a, an experience that a lot of kids probably wouldn't have.
0: And and coming from a large family, I know that your mother in particular ended up being a charter member of the 4-H club in Clinton Clinton County. County, And I know you had shared that as kind of maybe one of those early examples of giving that you recognized. It was probably the earliest. What do you recall from your mother's involvement with 4-H?
1: Well, we didn't have a lot of money, so there was no money really available to give cash. So she got involved in other ways. She was a charter founder of the 4-H Club in Clinton County and she also uh, led a forage club in Peru for uh, over 40 years I guess uh, she received awards for that kind of for that work and so on so I saw that being done although you don't need money to be a contributor to a society so that was probably my
0: earliest way of knowing that how did that strike you I mean with nine siblings or family of nine I should say what struck you when you see your mom Devoting so much yeah. time to putting this together and doing all that she's doing at home and being on a family farm. Yeah.
1: Uh, There's enough work just being a, the uh, mother in the family, <laughs> a family farm family. You know. Right. But she, somehow she found the time to do all that work. It was uh, being a club leader in a community. All the all the children in that community, just about all of them, would belong to a forage club. At least that was the case in, in Peru. So she actually was a role model in a way.
0: You went to Clarkson University, had an interest in engineering and management, correct? Yeah, sure. Uh, sure a little bit about I that. Fa- I found out yeah. early on I was not going to be. I didn't want to be a
1: farmer, same <laughs> as Dave. I think. <laughs> no. It's too hard. I'll, too much work, but is a great way to grow up. I'm glad I went yeah. through it because. Yeah, I wouldn't you know, trade it. You, know, you, you learn values being a, on a farm that you wouldn't get if you were, you know, not a non-farm family. I didn't want to be an, a, a farmer. I was a good student, especially in science and math. So I wanted to go to an engineering school, and of course, the closest one was Clarkson, and that's where I went for four years. And directly from college to a job with the New York State DOT. At that time, it was called the Department of Public Works later changed to DOT.
0: Over time your responsibilities changed there uh, to a position where you were kind of a director and leading some of the operations yes, for the DOT. Yes.
1: I was very fortunate in that I got my professional engineering license in five years and that's the minimum amount of time you could get that in. So they put me ahead of some people who sort of you know, took their time getting their license and maybe took the exam several times or something. That put me ahead uh, of them. And fortunately, a position came up. At that time, it was called the planning director. And then that job kept expanding because the responsibilities that DOT took over from other departments in the state led to that. I became a manager right after I got my P.E. license in uh, 19... 68. And I retired in 2002, so you can do the math. I was a manager for a long time and kept getting promotions because the responsibility of that position kept changing and increasing. So a job that I thought I would be at, you know, in Watertown for a couple years and go to Albany or some other place turned into 40 years. There was a lot of responsibility with that job because all of them Project beginning of every project and the funding funds that we use, among many other things, were my responsibility. But I had a staff, I had, I had
0: 23 people at one point. Can you share, Bruce, just what the best part of that position was for you? Or is there an aspect of the DOT work that maybe the general public just isn't aware of? You know, we see the DOT out everywhere and you're doing all these different projects, but is there a part of what the DOT does that you think is really valuable, and the public just isn't aware of. For for me,
1: that would be uh, economic development. Most people probably wouldn't think of New York State DOT being an economic development, and all of that part of it came was in my department. So that got me involved uh, with a lot of people outside DOT. That, as well as my normal duties. So I met and worked with every county manager, all those years, city mayors, town supervisors. All the public officials did a lot of public meetings that were not only project-oriented, with four projects you know we were going to build, but also uh, with economic development. I worked with a lot of people, most of the people involved in any kind of planning in the five counties for a long time. So that would be one thing probably that most people
0: wouldn't realize. A question for each of you to kind of transition into to giving. Who taught you what you feel are some of the main values of giving back?
1: I had an early experience. When I came to work for New York State Public Works, that's you know, what it's called at that time. The district engineer, we called the person that time, now it's a regional director because of changes in the department and so on. He was a wonderful man. Well, I was promoted to a management position early, so I. I reported directly to him. Got to know him very well, got to know his, his wife. Early on, too, I was doing uh, income tax work on the side, <laughs> I like numbers and so on. And he asked me to do his tax return. I said, you I'll give it a try. And from doing his tax return, I realized how much he donated to charities, church and yeah. charities. Uh, it really blew me away. I didn't realize people gave that much.
0: Did you ever ask him, as a follow up, you know, can you tell me a little bit more about why you give or? the number of things you give to? He just thought it was his responsibility,
1: that he was fortunate that he got to where he was, which is high, pretty high up in DOT. He just thought he was very fortunate. Uh, he was a l- religious man, of course. He went to church regularly and gave a lot of money to his church. It just uh, sort of came natural with him, uh, to him, I guess. Yeah. Dave,
2: about you? Well, I my my, remember my mother uh, would get a notice on the Red Cross every spring with envelopes and a canister, and they wanted her to canvas. Our neighborhood in Adams Center for the Red Cross, and she used to do that faithfully every spring. But as far as giving now, I just kind of started on my own, because when I retired in 1998, I had, so, not, well I didn't have Social Security, but I had a retirement, and I'm not working, but I'm getting this money, and I'm thinking, you know, this is something I've got to start giving, because I was giving at the church, and like I said before, I felt that I needed to support the DAV and the USO and the Wounded Warriors because, well, I just felt I had to. So between those three, and then you got Special Olympics, the Red Cross, and the Cancer Center in Buffalo. Roswell Park. Roswell Park. So I give to those six faithfully every other month. It's just something that I'm blessed with the retirement income, so I just thought that I should give back.
0: Why do you feel it's important to give and just to help those in need?
2: because through sickness, unemployment, these people need a hand up, and especially their families. You can't make a wife and kids suffer because the husband doesn't have a job through no fault of his own. I just think they need a
1: hand up. You, you see, if you're out in the community at all, which yeah, you both see of sorry, you see the need, you know, the, the agencies I'm most involved with, their mission, and Salvation Army, you you know, you see it every day, and you you start to wonder, well, can I I do something, even on a small scale?
2: I remember one time I was at the Urban Mission and this Amish lady was there, and she had five or six little kids with her, and she needed bread really, really bad, and the Urban Mission didn't have any bread at all. And I'm thinking that I'm looking at her and she's got these little kids with her. So I gave her $10 to go buy some bread. Made me feel good.
0: Well, you're taking care of that mother and those yeah. children.
2: Yeah. She didn't have the money. She didn't, you know, I, I don't know the exact circumstances. I just know that there was a buggy and a horse out there in the parking lot.
1: You you know that every week Dave and I. I was just going were, to ask about well, that. Yes.
0: Tell me, tell me when that started because you, you uh, helped with Dave, the
1: Dave actually was the start person for yeah, that program.
2: 1906. Or 2006 because we used to have a food pantry donation every week. We'd carry a basket down front. And people used to fill this basket and more every week. And we were ahead. Sacred Heart you would get the the trophy every year for most giving. But this particular year, we were ahead all year long. So I thought, boy, we're gonna get the spam trophy this year. Come to our big meeting in February of 06, Sacred Heart got it again. And I couldn't believe it. They put a big rush on at the last minute and beat us. So then I said, well, that's not gonna happen again. I'm gonna start some kind of a fund at church. And I started it with $5 a week, each member. And it, $5 oh, yeah. a month. $5 a month, I mean. $5 a month,
0: yes. So it was a and competition amongst local churches yeah. to raise as much money as you could yeah. for the pantry well, of mission.
2: It really took off. People, and a lot of people gave me more than $5 a month. Uh, some people gave me a lot more than $5 a month. Well, anyways, I had this fund, so I started going to, well, Aldi's wasn't here then. I go to Price Chopper and Tops and different places and pick up food. And of course we won, we blew every church away in 06. And it's grown every, every year, year since then.
1: We're, we're spending about $180 on average every week yeah. of, from that fund. And we're picking up items from tops and from our own people as well.
0: How many members of the congregation would you say or what percentage of the congregation That's would you large say? That's a large percentage. Dave would know pretty close.
2: There's about 100 people in it, so I would say 80 percent of the
0: congregation. They bought into the concept of yeah, what you've created and really, saying, yeah, yeah. you know, this this and is It's unbelievable
1: is a really good thing. to me. We well, first off, their mission has a group of uh, church delegates. There are over 50 churches that Urban Mission is dealing with in this. Uh, Dave and I have tried to sell that option to, well, every, not every time, but many times when we have our quarterly meetings with that group. Yeah, we, yeah. And we have not been able to get it going in other churches. Mm-hmm. We haven't stopped trying, but it surprises
0: me.
2: Yeah, it will take somebody that's got yeah, go to collect money. That's
1: the main reason. Though. Yeah.
0: It's always a trick. There's a, certainly a craft and a skill to that, but obviously you and Asbury have kind of mastered that a little bit yeah. have yeah. kind of found it's the have I never had any trouble
2: asking people for money if it's for a good
0: cause. Why do you think it's important to just have, whether it's members of a congregation or people in a community, just participate in giving? It doesn't have to be about the size of the dollar, but just give something. Yeah. Why, why is participation important? Well, it makes people feel good.
2: Yeah, you're just doing the right thing.
0: A lot of them don't have the where we're all to give
1: $50 every week to some cause or something like that or even every month to some cause or a group of causes but with $5 a month most people can do that and then several a lot of give more than that So.
2: Well, you don't ask people that you feel like you're taking things, something away from you ask the people that you know can afford to do this and most people feel blessed. I feel blessed that I'm able to do that. You know I don't I'm not in need of anything. I don't travel. I don't You know, I just, I'm happy with what I'm doing. I go to Brownville once in a while, and I just feel that it's just the right thing to do. I mean, I'm very blessed, and I want to share that.
0: What do you learn about the community from volunteering at the Urban Mission or helping with the Urban Mission every week?
1: Well, one thing, you know, and learn right away is that there are many, many people in need, and if you can help satisfy that need. in the case of what we do at Urban Mission, it's a fairly good percentage of of the food products that are brought into the urban mission by other groups. Of course, they, they get goods from, uh, from the Central New York Food Bank. Well, Dave and I were this this week, and there were some items they didn't have any, nothing on the shelf, and that that's, happens quite often. So we know when we go in there, what they need, we go and buy it. Yeah, that's where we have a little advantage. We find
2: out Tuesday what they need. This week, it was juice and uh, ravioli. And and
1: they wanted instant potatoes. Potatoes, yeah. Oh, sure, yeah. So that's what we bought. And we
0: were able to buy that.
2: So we get what they need, you know, where somebody just dropping off donations, it's great, but, they're just dropping off donations, you know what I mean?
0: This way you're kind of touching on... A weekly need, a weekly need. Yeah, yeah
2: we, we, we get what they need. Ramen noodles, tuna fish.
0: Well, and it seems this might actually coincide with the next question to Bruce, just about Salvation Army, but it seems like an urban mission, Salvation Army, and some of these area food pantries, one of the areas where they seem to struggle is with hygiene products. There's always seems to be a, a dearth of these and always a great need. Is that something you've kind of observed? And no yeah. food pantry can only, you know, provide so many food products. I, I don't know if hygiene products is another area where those no, donations are needed. Or uh, uh,
2: we go to Walmart for that because you can get shampoo, toothpaste, deodorant, really, really uh, inexpensive. Kind
0: of with the Salvation Army, Bruce, you've been affiliated with that organization for more than 20 years. Whether it's chairperson, volunteer, you, you pretty much have done it all. What does that agency in particular mean to you? And also, what what does the Salvation Army mean to this community? First off, it is is a church. People don't realize
1: that, but it's a church and there's a Sunday service every week. People mostly from that area where it's located come to church services, a few others. So that that's a, the basics of the Salvation Army. Uh, personally, it goes way back. My mother was a Salvation Army cadet back in the late teens. I'm talking about 1918. She was a cadet and very well uh, established with the organization at time. I think that happened because her mother died when she was 13. Uh, she had three younger siblings which she had to help with. Of course, her father had to work two, three jobs, at least, to support the family and keep them together. And the keeping them together was something that Salvation Army did, or helped, very much. They knew the family, they knew the problem they had, and they kept that family together. And later, my father met my mother at a Salvation Army dance, and it's a very personal thing with me there.
0: And the organization is such a connector to that community or the part of the population that has that great need. Can, can you just share why you feel the Salvation, is, Salvation Army rather, is so So important to the community today, not just Watertown, but obviously there's other chapters across the North Country. Yes,
1: in Watertown, as you probably have heard or know, we do a a soup kitchen six days a week. It's more than a soup kitchen; really, it's a hot meal every day except uh, except Sunday. And there are people that probably, if not for the Salvation Army soup kitchen, they would not have a hot meal every day. So that's one of the biggest things we do. I think people are in need of a lot of things in that particular community off State Street. We do a lot of summer programs, too, for kids. There's a drop-off program where parents can drop off their kids and go to work. Almost daily, there's a program at Salvation Army, mostly for children. So it's just an an organization you can't help but like if you get involved in it. And there are a lot of volunteers that work with the Salvation Army, especially at Christmas time. The staff there is, is two people or are officers. Sometimes we only have one, which is really difficult, but they, we have two now and it should have two. And then we have two employees that work are employed and work in the kitchen, three actually. And we have an administrative assistant, and that's it, that are paid. <laughs> and none of them, including the majors, get paid very much. Therefore, with the volunteer help and those people that are employed, they don't get a full week, you know, they don't get 30 hours a week, I think is max. But the overhead is is very small because we can do that with so few people. So if you give a dollar to Watertown Salvation Army, you can expect that most of that, probably 90% is going to go towards the soup kitchen, programs for kids and so on. There aren't many organizations that can do that.
0: Dave, what are some other examples of giving back that you see in the community, where people or organizations are making a key difference.
2: Well, start with the Northern New York Community Foundation is huge. The it's Six Town Community Fund, which I'm also a part of, uh, has done so much for the well Southern Jefferson County as far as scholarships go. It's helped out some kids. A couple of them I know personally that it really helped them to the further their education. They might not have gotten. This, it, who knows, but they got it because Six Down Community Fund. And uh, I just joined uh, George C. Bolt. I'm not sure what that's all about, but we're going over to Bolt Castle Tuesday. He's matching every donation. This is George Bolt's great, great grandson. Great grandson is matching every donation for scholarships. For
0: scholarships, yeah, for students. And it's so, uh, not necessarily those that excel in academics, but might also be. Uh, or we either a student that maybe average but shows some civic mindedness but also non-traditional students so it could even be an adult learner that's going back that wow. could be eligible for that so it's a, a really out. neat ne- legacy piece to kind of complement yeah. all that George Bolt is familiar with up in this area so
2: those three are really outstanding I mean just it's, it's gotta inspire everyone if they know about it you know know about them and I think Randy and you certainly doing that part of it, getting that out there, you know.
1: I can't believe how much your organization has grown. Oh, my God. You know, it started very small, as you know.
2: Yeah, it and, stayed and small. And expanded
1: out into
0: other areas as well, right? Well, I think it speaks to the importance of what a community foundation can do for a community in the long term, and I think it's because of supporters and the generosity of others, much like the two of you, and a host of others that believe in a community foundation that we're able to, as an organization, deploy these resources. If it's for scholarships and education or grants to make communities stronger and nonprofits stronger, that's, that's really the whole purpose of why they were started almost 100 years ago. So to have one here in Northern New York, I think is really pretty special sure. and affords us an opportunity to help Help our nonprofits be stronger, but also make our communities thrive. Um, I like
1: to support the arts, mm-hmm. and of course, the Community Foundation is a big supporter, not just in this county, but in St. Lawrence County as well.
0: Can you articulate just why the arts in a community are such an important piece to the quality of life and where you live?
1: I am concerned that the arts, you know, music, orchestra, any kind of music really, orchestra especially, uh, little smaller groups are not going to survive unless we give them enough support. And it's, it's, it's gotta be very difficult, especially small organizations, to, to keep going if, if they don't get more support. And, and I've always been involved in music and like music. Uh, so I, I support not only the Community Foundation because they support those organizations, but I support several organizations, or Art of Music organizations directly. Yeah. And I think it's very, very important. I, I know there's some schools now that are stopping their programs, and music programs. And, yeah, it's a terrible trend. I'm concerned about that. And What little I can do, I, I try to.
0: What have you each learned about yourselves through all the volunteering that you've done?
1: Well, I think in my case, I've learned that you can make a difference. Dave and I show that every week through the Urban Mission, well, through the Salvation Army with me also, You can make a a difference, and it doesn't take a lot of money. It doesn't take a lot of effort. Of course, it's great if you have a lot of money to give, but it doesn't take a lot of any of those. It just takes time, and we have the time. Some people don't, but some people have a full-time job and also contribute, so based on the fact that the the volunteers I see are not older people necessarily at both of the organizations we've been talking about. So you, you can make a difference, and you can see that difference.
2: Well, the thanks that we get every week from the people at the Urban Mission is very rewarding. I mean, they just love us over there, and we hear it every week. And even our congregation, because we, you know, when you get up around thirty thousand items a year, the congregation sees that in the bulletin every week. They put the running total in, and we get a lot of thank yous for that. You know.
0: You know, one thing we talked about before is about the importance of just kindness and how kindness really is a form of philanthropy, and that very much is embedded in gratitude. Yeah. Why, why do you feel kindness is just such an important thing that maybe sometimes gets forgotten or lost in the chaos of, of our daily lives?
1: Well, that being kind doesn't cost anything, right? For yeah. one thing. And
2: it is contagious.
1: And if you're kind to someone, in many cases that person probably will be kind to others as well, it's a growing thing. Yeah,
2: it? it's not hard to do, anybody can do it.
1: And I see a lot of kind people every week, either at the organizations we support or, or just out in
0: general. Bruce, you talked about the arts as one area where you're concerned about its future and resources available to continue doing really good programs or having events. Are there other areas of our community that might benefit from more philanthropic activity, be that financial resources or just volunteering?
1: Again, through the organizations I work with, there are a lot of homeless people in this area. And right now, there's not a shelter for those people in Watertown. I know, you know, some people are helping individuals and that kind of thing that are homeless. But we really need a shelter. But it's a big, it's a big undertaking. You know, to build a building, get the funding for that structure, and to pay people. That, you know, you have to have full-time people working. You got these. But I would like to see more people pick up on that. And yeah. Maybe someday we can have a shelter. It's needed, there's no doubt about that.
2: We got these zombie houses. I shouldn't say zombie houses because they're houses that mostly can't be fixed, but there's houses around the city that are big, that aren't being lived in. Couldn't they be converted into some kind of a shelter at hardly any expense? I mean, a a person living in a shelter isn't gonna want room service, you know what I mean? There's houses in the city of Watertown that could be turned into shelters. I mean, somebody would have to run them and pay taxes and yeah.
1: Yeah, the problem but is, I just think is that it that comes down to money, though, right? Resources available. Yeah. yeah, there might be grants available and that kind of thing, but not enough.
0: Yeah, that would probably be the, the trick, I'm guessing. But if there were an opportunity to repurpose some of these beautiful homes yeah. And, yeah. and some of these streets and neighborhoods, and particularly here in Watertown, that could know, certainly help some there. of those folks.
2: These houses, are just, nobody mows the lawn. Just, in fact, I think if a person was staying in a shelter, he probably would mow the lawn and the take city, care of it yeah. and do things you know, around it, keep it up. For nothing just for a place to stay I the think city's
1: doing a decent job in taking these places down and through united neighbors you know they're rebuilding some of them that's a great thing and i would yeah. hope that would that would continue
2: yeah there is some houses that are vacant now that wouldn't take a lot to be brought back to respectability
1: the salvation army as you may know is taking down three buildings Next to our core building on State Street. Nothing good was ever going to happen to those buildings. So we got a grant through the city and the federal government to help us with that.
0: And that's part of the larger vision that's for the That's part of our larger vision where we, you
1: know, first we'll have a, uh, a green space for, for kids that we don't have. We don't have any green space right now. We'll have parking for the Salvation Army events you know, that we carry on, like the pancake breakfast, yeah, and, say like and, the Thanksgiving Day dinner and all that. So we'll have that done and at some point, I think, and then pave the lot and do it in stages. Eventually, we would like to get a, a bigger and better kitchen. The kitchen we have and the small dining room we have are, are just not big enough. Well, well, we're handling really? uh, 80 to 110 people a day. So they have to go in in stages. They line up in the hall and that creates problems because sometimes they get argued with each other so if we had a bigger dining room everybody could go in and see, get seated so that's
0: our that's our long range plan as we wrap up thinking about the next generation a little bit whether it's at a food pantry or elsewhere in our community there's a standard i feel like your generation has really set you know there's a bar that's pretty high of giving to your community or giving to the things that you care about most how can we inspire youth in the next generation to to give to the level that you have? That's
1: a tough question.
0: I don't really have an answer. I think maybe
1: schools could help in some way if maybe they could get extra credit for kids that are willing to volunteer at some of these places. Uh, Maybe work into the curriculum in some courses. The idea of of volunteerism, but it it is a tough question.
2: Well, you could take people like my grandson Take them to the urban mission and let them see, you know, Randy's son. Take them to the Salvation Army during the soup kitchen hour when they have dinner, lunch, and show them. Let them decide. And if they've got any heart at all, I'm sure they'll see that you should give to help these people.
0: It certainly seems to lift the lens or widen the lens, I should say, a little bit more to what the community looks like when you have... your point Exposure. Exactly. Yeah. So that awareness can kind of continue to build over time. And I, I think there's a lot of kids out there that are doing good volunteers. And yeah, work. you read about them in the paper, well, yeah, yeah. Well, we hope certainly that those students can be inspired by just having that access and exposure to those things. And hopefully, listeners to this podcast will take the initiative and be proactive in their approach to volunteering the way that the two of you have. You know, area nonprofits need a strong volunteer base to fulfill their mission and services. And you're certainly both leading the way as great examples. So for that, we say thank you. and continue to support all that you do. Thank
2: Thank you. you. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Northern New York Community Podcast. Remember, every interview is easy to access and always free, whether it's online or on your mobile device. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or other podcast platforms when you search for the Northern New York Community Podcast. We also have a website. You can listen anytime to other conversations which also feature interview highlights, transcripts, photo galleries, and much more. Just go to nnycpodcast.com. We appreciate Bruce Irwin and David Studley coming on the podcast and sharing their story. Please join us next time for another edition of the Northern New York Community Podcast. Northern New York Community Podcast. Stories from the heart of our community.